Hi, I'm Owen. And I'm Chris. And this is the Dead Wargamer Society. So today we actually have a great guest star on with us, uh, Dave Taylor. So <laughs> we're trying to come up with the best way to introduce Dave. Uh, a lot of people, if you've been to cons, already know who he is. He's been involved in so many games and so many projects that you've most likely seen his name or seen some of his work, even if you don't recognize that name right away. He's been working with games since 1994. He's worked with GW stuff and the Black Library. He's also had several successful Kickstarter campaigns, his Armies and Legions and Hordes, as well as the Terrain Essentials books. He's done a lot of work with the Nova Convention with their charitable foundation. He's also been involved in a lot of hobby and painting things, such as the crystal brush and judging that crystal brush. Um, he was also involved with uh, some of Owen and my favorite games like dark age. Um, I, th- I think that's, that's, that's a good part of, <laughs> of Dave. Um, he is from Australia. So he also has a lovely accent and, you know, has dealt with crazy wildlife. Dave, that, that about sums it up. <laughs> that's- um, well, it's pretty close. You, you've, you've gone through the first few years, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, no, thank you for pointing out that I'm old. Um, <laughs> it's it's all good. Uh, my my favorite thing about the uh, that little note of I've uh, been in the industry since 1994 is uh, that currently on on Thursdays I do a painting live stream called Painting Happy Little Minis, and uh, my co-host Gretchen was born in 1991. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so it's a dead every time, it's like, oh, I'm old, I'm the old guy in the room. <laughs> but uh, but no, I think, uh, yeah, there's, it's, there's loads of different things, as um, hopefully that introduction can attest to. I'm a huge fan of uh, toy soldiers and tabletop war games. So, right on. So uh, what do you have on the painting table right now, Dave? Uh, right now, uh, I am working on a, uh, a Death Guard army for Warhammer 40,000. Nice. And uh, I've done a lot of conversions for it, and it's really sort of inspired me to do a lot more conversions. So now I'm working on doing a, a second Gene Stealer cult army that uses the Corpse Grinder cult models from uh, Necromunda. Awesome. Uh, as their focus. So um, there's a really cool cult called the Cult of the Inner Worm who are all about, uh, they basically work in the slaughter yards and that kind of thing. So oh, nice. I figure the Corpse Grinder cult would be perfect for that. Is that from like the Gene Stewart cult codex or is that like a Black Library thing? Uh, the the uh, Cult of the Inner Worm is is just like one of those snippets in the, um, in the Gene Stewart cult codex uh, where they're like, here are the six main cults. And then like here, here are six other ones, and and one of them's like the picture is just this guy like, uh, well, like a cultist, with t- head tilted back and blood dripping into his mouth and that kind of thing. So <laughs> obviously that looks cool and needs to be turned into an army. So, obviously. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's what I've got on the go at the moment. Nice, nice. How about you, Chris? What have you been up to? Uh, trying to get a start on my IJN army for Dust. Um, just got those models in, so uh, it's it's a really scattered color scheme. Um, there's the ninjas, which are going in a Foot Clan from Ninja Turtles kind of thing. Um, 
the gigantic walkers are all going to be uh, crazy color shifts from Turbo Dorks, especially the Xeno Shift ones that are coming out in about a week or two. Um, and uh, lastly, all of their schoolgirl cadet models. Um, Zara was very adamant that they're all each unit is painted like a different um, Sailor Moon character. <laughs> so um, oh <laughs> it's a super crazy, just like it's all of the references in, in one package. Um, it's been pretty interesting to get <laughs> to get started on the army, um, but I'm excited to uh, see where it goes eventually. I, I can uh, imagine your Pinterest page for it. <laughs> uh, how about you, Owen? <laughs> um, I just finished up a Dark Age army, um, which I'm, I'm happy to uh, say was done pretty quickly, which was nice. I like the way it turned out. I didn't spend a ton of time on it, which is best way it could possibly go. Uh, got a Who'd relic- you do? Uh, I did the Brood, uh, Broodmere sub-faction, so it's oh, a cool. model called uh, Sion the lashers and then a bunch of the generic troops to go with it. So plenty of room for expansion. I totally won the lottery and actually came across a unopened box of the, uh, Aaron and his hounds and Arenia box. Oh, nice. uh, yeah. yeah, that was, I, I like I said, I, I won the lottery on that. Someone put it up. I happened to be the one that got it. And Oh, oh boy, <laughs> that, that, that is, uh, makes me very happy. So, uh, <laughs> Excellent. That is also on deck. I want to spend some time thinking about how I'm actually going to do that. If I'm going to just do it straight, those are rare models. So I, I kind of don't want to convert them too much, but also I, I do like to put my own twist on things. So we'll figure that out. But uh, I've also got uh, some Relic Blade on my painting table right now, the Wildkin. I'm uh, painting them to match up with my Bone and Darkness army that I use for demos. So trying to get that done. So whenever we can actually go out in the world and interact in person again safely, uh, I will have that uh ready to go. And it also appears that we're going to be running a painting contest from the Samaria Born Facebook group for people that play Dark Age. So I've got some more Dark Age on my table. I'm <laughs> going a little crazy on these. I'm going to do some K3 models uh, converted up to be uh, Cultist of the Moon. So going to oh, really try to, to go hog wild on that, um, have a good time with it. And uh, hopefully that'll keep me busy for a good chunk of the winter. Yeah, that'd be sweet. Look yeah. forward to seeing those Cult of the Moon. Well, yeah. don't, don't get your don't get your hopes up too high. I'm not a I'm not a detailer <laughs> in terms of uh, painting. <laughs> I, I just want to see what your ideas are. That ah, okay. Ideas are awesome. Yeah, I want mean, to see the ideas so he can do it better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to say that. No. Um, but, uh, it's I, so funny. I had the same idea, and I've already done it. Amazing. No, um, I, I don't have any K3. Uh, K3 aren't really up my uh, up my alley, but I was always curious as to what the the um, cold of the moon would look like. So yeah, just uh, I, no, I'm just excited to see it. It'd be cool. Right on. Awesome. Well, uh, I, I want to thank you too, Dave, for being here. It is really an honor to be able to talk to you. And when we were discussing who to have a hobby conversation with on the channel, I, I think you were on the top of our want list. So we are just, <clears throat> excuse me, incredibly happy that uh, that you can be here with us. Um, we had a couple questions we wanted to ask you, but let's just kind of see where the conversation goes. Hopefully it's interesting for other people and uh, <laughs> put this up online and not have people fall asleep. So Chris, you want to uh, start us off? Yeah, it's just start, starting out, um, looking at a lot of the older game systems and dead war games, it's going to be a little bit different from people coming from a GW background or more, you know, newer game systems, which are going to focus on those plastics, plastic glue, um, models that are easy to kind of just slot together and go. Um, 
Do you have any special considerations or things that might go into working with older style models, such as like metal models or resin models? Um, I think there are two. Uh, I, I do, of course. I'd love to talk about any sort of toy soldiers. Um, so and assembling and painting and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I was always going to have an answer for you, but uh, yeah, I think the two main things to uh, for folks to consider with working with metal and with resin is uh, the first one would be pinning, um, mm-hmm. generally because uh, metal models are heavier. Uh, so the, the parts are heavier, the arms are heavier, the weapons, all that sort of stuff are going to be heavier than plastic. Uh, there's a tendency to to pull away at the joints uh, wherever you've used um, super glue to uh, to connect them. So putting in a taking the time to put a pin in in those joints, and when I say a pin, like a piece of a um, paper clip or a brass rod or or something like that, just drill into both sides, put the pin in, super glue it. Uh, that's important for metal miniatures because of the weight and for resin miniatures, usually around um, more fragile sections or th- thinner parts because uh, resin is going to be more fragile than both metal and, um, and plastic. So anywhere you need, need to connect fragile parts, it's a good idea to pin those. Um, sometimes with things like resin spears and so on, um, you might even just want to go straight ahead and um, replace the spear haft with a steel rod or a brass rod, that kind of thing that you can pick up from hobby stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be the first thing. And the other one would be uh, talking about super glue. Mm-hmm. So because um, you can use plastic glue for days if you're uh, putting together 40K or Age of Sigma stuff. Um, when it comes to metal and um, plastic, uh, sorry, metal and resin stuff, uh, you definitely need super glues. Um, one thing to consider is the amount of time that a bottle of superglue is going to be sitting around um, because superglue goes off over time. Um, it becomes thicker and um, less adhesive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while you can go and get like big like two-ounce bottles of superglue, unless you're going to be doing a lot of gluing of metal and resin parts, you're better off going for uh, buying smaller bottles, uh, even though they're they might be a little bit more expensive, like dollar per ounce kind of thing, mm-hmm. but uh, you'll get more use out of them. Um, and there's a, the the reason that Games Workshop, um, for example, is switched to you buy a box. Uh, you don't buy a, a bottle of super glue from that anymore. You buy a box of like ten little squeeze tubes. Mm-hmm. Um, is for that very reason because those things are sealed, so they're not going to go off. Um, and there's, but as, as soon as air starts to hit super glue, particularly in a in a bottle sort of situation, it's going to start going off. And uh, yeah, you just want to keep the amounts that you have small so that um, it doesn't go off over time. Interesting. They might they might do quick things. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's, it's something that a lot of not a lot of people know that super glue will go off over time. Yeah, I was going to say, most of the time I get the bigger bottles, but um, I also go through a lot of yeah. super glue <laughs> in a pretty quick period of time. Like, I'll, I'll kill one of yeah. those two-ounce bottles in, like, a week. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> right. And so, like, it really, yeah. it's, not, it's not as much of an issue. I've never really had that, um, except where I, like, have left the bottle and just kind of forgot about it, moved on to a new bottle, and then went back, you know, 
three months later you find it, it's like, oh wow, this isn't working as well as it used to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, along with the the resonant metal, I think the one thing that I thought about with it is um, washing your models, <laughs> like. Okay. Um, yep. Just because uh, with plastics, I've never really had an issue, you know, with the GW stuff of just assembling it, priming it and painting it and then just kind of going along. But um, definitely with resins, especially using like a contrast or a glazing style paint, like if you just prime straight over it, number one, like the primer not adhering really well with the mold release still on the model. Um, or number two, when you try to finally go over your 18 coats of primer that you had to put on. <laughs> To sure. uh, to kind of cover that that the the glazes and the contrast just kind of pull right off that section. Nothing like kind of sticks. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you're exactly right. The um, being careful about uh, mold release is really what we've been talking about with with resins and uh, the way that resins cast in like silicon molds. Typically, they'll spray the mold with a mold release, um, kind of like an oily sort of substance, so that the resin will pull out of the mold really easily. Uh, but yeah, that residue is always left on resin. So yeah, definitely, definitely a good point to always wash your resin. With um, I think with metal miniatures, uh, it's sometimes the the um, what do you call them? The molds are like hit with a powder, mm -hmm. so kind of dusted with kind of like a talc powder, and um, so sometimes your uh, mini, your metal minis can be a little bit dusty. So washing those could could be all right as well. Um, did you uh, have any strong opinions on uh, like accelerator for super glue when you're working with uh, resin and metal? I know a lot of people like using that, particularly if they're trying to attach a fairly heavy uh, piece to a joint that might uh, want to fall down if you just let it cure under normal times. But I've also heard that that can impact the uh, lifetime of the bond. Any any thoughts there? Yeah, um, no, I think you're you're exactly right there. Sometimes it's super convenient, uh, but the thing that it does do is that it uh, it forces the the super glue to crystallize faster. Um, so I think the the bond is weaker. Um, so sometimes it's completely fine. Uh, you don't need a, a lot of strength to the bond, but uh, if you've got an, a, a section apart, particularly on a metal miniature. Um, You've got a, a, two large pieces that you're trying to put together, and you're just using super glue and accelerator. You, you're going to have problems, but I think uh, if you're using super glue, accelerator, and a pin, you should be all right. Right on. Okay. Cool. One, one thing that I'll say as well is that um, it's moisture is the thing that. Um, so it's moisture in the air. It's not oxygen or anything. It's moisture in the air that causes um, super glue to start setting up, um, start to cure. So Things like uh, like water from your paint pot, uh, so your your paint water or um, saliva or that kind of thing can also accelerate super glue. So if you just got a small area, there's what I'm saying is there are times when I've I've stuck sort of the end of a piece that needs to be glued onto my tongue, while there's a little dab of super glue on the other part, and then put it together. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely done the same, and then uh, had like lovely crusty tips. Don't lick the glue. <laughs> like, make it's, sure you're not gluing your model to your tongue it will attach incredibly quickly it is super important to not do that yes, <laughs> yes. make sure you're always certain as to which area <laughs> which side you have the glue <laughs> yep awesome um so 
a lot of people can struggle to find models for older games, which is what th this podcast focus on. Sure. And I'm seeing it's more common for people to want to try to convert uh, different models into models for a game using, for example, things like the GW Warlord plastic kits. Any advice for people uh, looking to start there, or do you have any? Have you done something like that for yourself? Um, I think I probably have. Um, I'm trying to think of an example at the moment, but I can't. Uh, generally, I, I because I I'm going to put this in air quotes just so everybody knows. When I grew up uh, on Games Workshop games. It's kind of it's put in the, to me that mentality of, of always using the games. Uh, sorry, the miniatures that are made for the game. I think uh, really it, a lot of it comes down to the. I think the most important part is having a vision for what you're going to make. Um, mm -hmm. So if you're if you can picture what you want the end result to be, it's going to make it easier to to track down the parts that you want or um, the the pieces that you could use. Or I know you guys have chatted a little bit of the time about um, 3D printing. It can also help you when you're, you're looking through all of the different um, wonderful Patreons that uh, put out loads of STL files. Of course, if you don't have a vision for what you wanted to do, have a browse, find something that catches your eye. Uh, and then depending on what you need to do, like usually I think most of the games that you're probably talking about are a fairly small scale, a small size sort of skirmish, a uh, small model count. Yep. Um, but if you are looking at a, a project that is a large model count, make sure that whatever you choose to convert with is sort of readily accessible for whatever the count is. You don't want to go, um, oh yeah, fantastic. I'll, I'll just do, um, I'll do this army and I'll use these pieces and then realize that those pieces come on one frame from uh, <laughs> like in a, in a $70 box and you, yep. need, and you need 20 of them. It's like, okay, well you can find them on a, on, find them on eBay and uh, around the internet somewhere, but you might, it, just a slight change might mean, okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to use that pistol. I'm going to use these pistols and they come 20 to a box. So just uh, consider that sort of thing as you're, if you're doing any scaling. I think uh, with the converting, because I feel like I've done a lot of the converting at this sure. point. Um, I always end up having to get into these dead games like right after they've died. And it's like, oh, man, I can't <laughs> find like half of them. Um, I think that the two main tips that I would probably have about this is uh, one is having bits from the original model where possible can really help to bring models from other games into the universe. So like hoarding all of those bits from the dead games, like models might come with an extra gun option or like some random like doodads, you know, flasks, army banners, things like that. And being able to add those little pieces help to make models from other games closer to what you're looking for um, in the game. And the other thing is trying to remove any game specific iconography from existing models. You know, so like if you're taking a GW model and you're trying to make it into anything not GW, usually the first thing to go is the like 18 skulls that might be on the model, <laughs> like taking the skulls off knee pads, the skulls off the base, the skulls off the guns. Um, that alone will help make something a little bit less either 40K or Age of Sigmar looking and a little bit more generic looking, which might fit in better with what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it <laughs> When you said 18 skulls, I was like, well, you're leaving the other two. But, uh, <laughs> but, I, mean, uh, I mean, two's okay. Two, two's two, reasonable. Uh, that's, that's fair. <laughs> that's cool. I, I get it. Um, but yeah, one of, as you were talking, one of the things that um, that also made me think about it is uh, typically um, models are designed with a particular silhouette, a particular look, um, a shape, a bulk, 
um, a dynamic, like a level of uh, dynamic or dynamism. Is that really a word? I don't know. Yeah, sure. Uh, let's go for it. It let's, is now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's sort of, um, you have that kind of thing. So when you're looking to replicate it or con- converting existing models into a, a, the look of something, you want people to be able to look at it and go, okay, yeah, that's that's cool. That's a that's definitely a brood hound or that's cool. That's definitely, um, oh, my mind's gone blank. Anyway, something else. Uh, <laughs> so the you want it to have that silhouette, that bulk. If the model is bulky, you want to find a comparison, a comparable model that is also bulky, just so that it's easier for your opponents to sort of get into the the understanding of what that model is they're not always going oh is that a is that a what's what was that thing again um <laughs> if somebody has to ask you three times you may, might not have succeeded in your proxying right you might not want to try and like convert a 28 mil true scale chihuahua to be a brood hound which is a huge mutated <laughs> thing yeah. that's about the you know like about the size of like a bear um yeah. <laughs> people yeah, might exactly. struggle with that just like a little bit that makes sense yeah, so I think that's that's something that's in, uh, an important consideration doing conversions. I've just uh, when I mentioned that I've been working on Death Guard, I've just finished off um, to Chaos Spawn, but I didn't use any of the Chaos Spawn bits at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of them is a is made almost entirely from uh, a piece from the Great Unclean one, but it's just all tentacles. Hmm. It's tentacles with like a little little bit of body at the back of it. It's maybe not as tall as Chaos Spawn usually are, but it's on the same size base, and it looks. There's nothing else that it could be. It's like you look at that and you go, oh, "No, that's not a Terminator. That's not a. <laughs> right. That's not a Plague Marine. <laughs> it's not. A, it's not even a Poxwalker or a, a pile of uh, Nurglings or something like that. It's very definitely a Spawn, but um, it's. I, I think that's another kind of thing that you can do to kind of avoid uh, confusion. Very cool. So it could only look like one thing. (laughs) Right. So you briefly mentioned 3D printing. So obviously that's something that's kind of changed wargaming as a whole, Uh, looking at where things were even like five years ago to where things are today. The 3D printing has brought like a a bunch of stuff that I never thought really would have existed. Um, And it's becoming just as the years go on, much more common and affordable to consumers at a base level. So with someone who's been involved with the industry as that's kind of been evolving, what are your thoughts about kind of the whole 3D printing, um, the idea of like some people in reviving a dead game or IP utilizing either new sculpts that they did based on former art or um, things of that nature. Like um, I think Dark Age has a really good example where um, right before the game died, they did put out a lot of rules for the new brood stuff. And uh, there's a very talented sculptor who ended up putting out a whole sub-faction of Brood and did all the sculpts based on the artwork that was on the cards and is making those sculpts available to players to kind of continue with the game. You know, what what are your thoughts on that whole kind of thing? So many thoughts. So many thoughts. On that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for um, to start with, uh, they, if we go back and talk about generally about 3D printing, I think... I, re- I really do feel that 3D printing itself uh, is still still a hobby in itself. Um, mm-hmm. Even though there are a lot of places that are doing pre-supported files, um, costs of 3D printers are coming down dramatically. 
the quality is increasing all the time. But there's still a kind of an element of it where you have to want to really enjoy the process of it. It's not like um, they're, they're not to the point where they're like uh, inkjet printers or uh, laser printers that you can just plug in and go, I've made this cool thing. I want to print it. Click and it appears. There's no thinking involved in that except like, okay, when do I have to order more ink? When it gets to that point, I think it's going to be a very different kind of situation uh, for us all in the in the toy soldier kind of business. Um, what that's going to look like exactly, I don't know. I do have a fear about 3D printing and um, and its approach, and it's primarily that uh, it's it's mainly because I I can't see what the best side of um, of of it is. I know that sounds a little bit odd, but. What I'm saying is that uh, game stores, particularly in the US, uh, but places where people can gather and meet and talk and socialize and um, engage in those kind of activities, the, the social aspect of tabletop wargaming are really important places. And the way the business model works is that place stays open because people buy products. Uh, if people no longer buy products from that store, how does it remain open? How do, does a community keep a like a central focal focal place where that socializing can occur? Uh, and I, it's important for that socializing to occur and for it to happen in a public place so that people who don't know about tabletop wargaming can come along and play and, and find discover it and go through all that sort of that range of crazy emotions where like this is the most amazing thing ever. I will never do anything else. I want to buy right. that thing and I'll buy those paints and I'll go home and start painting right now. You very rarely like stumble across that kind of thing on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a balance that I think needs to be found and I'm not sure how that happens. So for the moment, I'm, I'm, very, te- like, I'm very tentative in my steps towards 3D printing, mainly because I'm not sure. I, I don't want to see it negatively impact the community, the the industry, the the whole shebang really mm-hmm. so yeah but having said that there's some amazing stuff being done isn't there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which and, and that's why it's like super difficult for me to to kind of uh definitely take a stand and say this is terrible because it's not entirely terrible it just has the potential to be <laughs> really terrible um but the the work that people are doing, the sculpting that's being done, the even the even to be honest, some of the business models are, are really exciting to to look at and uh, and see how they work. But can, yeah. can you can you expand on that? Um, I'm going to talk about things like um, companies that are doing Patreons, and I, I, so I'm not sure how many sculptors they have involved in the projects, but essentially they'll do a Patreon and you join, and it's ten dollars, twenty dollars, whatever to for a, a month to be a, a patron and mm-hmm. at the beginning of that month you'll get access to maybe 15 20 different uh stl files for a complete army so one that i saw recently i can't remember which company did it but it was essentially an entire like mind flayer army mm-hmm. so, like yeah like my was it not iliad Iliad? yeah Something like that, um, <laughs> but uh, where you've got characters, you've got troops, you've got a couple of different types of infantry. You've got uh, there was like a crazy floating ship. Um, so you, if you wanted to, you can go and join that, 
pay your $10, $20, download those files, and then leave. And then in three months' time, when something else pops up, you can go, oh, that looks great. I'll join, download the files, and then leave. Or mm-hmm. you might just stay there and not download all the files. Or you might download all the files and never actually print anything. The fact that there are so many new sculpts for all sorts of different things that are that are being put out is it's just kind of crazy kind of amazing and i think that yeah. it, it couldn't really that those companies couldn't do that if they were like okay well i want to release this entire army in plastic and do it all in high impact polystyrene uh, right. be, and get it out to people because it's a completely different uh, model mm-hmm. so yeah I, I find it fascinating i'm a bit of a luddite so there's a lot of it um that i don't particularly understand which is probably why I, I have that fear, but the the potential for it. I mean, I'm uh, doing some work at the moment with um, Gary Krieger of Genesis Games mm-hmm. um, for the Genesis Project, which is completely sort of miniatures agnostic and is even uh, kind of you build your own faction. So you could actually sit there and, and with that Mind Flayer army, you can go, okay, here are all the models that I could print. Let me work out a faction to use those with. The, and then you buy the buy the files, you print them out and like, after a month and a half of printing, you've got everything ready to paint, and but you've <laughs> kind of you, you've you've had a purpose for it, and you've created it for a game that you want to play. Whereas previously there, there were no games to use that army in. It's exciting, exciting stuff. I think it's really difficult um, just talking about three D printing and gaming in in general because uh, it's such a rabbit hole. You know, you go down like you said. There's so many different topics that kind of come up on it, and some of it's moral stuff. Some of it's like long term financial stability. You know, um, like everything from, you know, I think the one problem that uh, the 3D printing kind of presents to existing gaming companies um, in game stores, as well as to dead war games in game stores, is that the game store doesn't have a product to sell. Um, (laughs) You know, so because it's the same issue with like a dead war game, you know, like most stores aren't able to get an Eden product or dark age product at this point in time. Um, and definitely not enough to support like a regular play group. So, you know, who knows how that might look. There's a lot of different things that could come up such as, you know, more places in the U S going more of the game club model, like they have right. overseas, you know, where rather than the store existing as a store that also has places for people to play, it ex- you know it exists as a place where you come in and pay just to be there you right. know you pay your monthly fee or you know you pay your annual fee and the store provides you know drinks and you know snacks tables sometimes glue or a painting station and it, it exists as more of a social club um more than you know a store yeah which i i honestly think is 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 a pretty solid way of doing things like i do think that's that's a pretty neat way to go but i know there's a there's a little bit of pushback on that specifically yeah. <laughs> looking at, at at dead games though um i think i sure. think it's kind of i think it's uh, it's kind of tricky um because i i think a lot of people are very opposed to ip theft you know and someone yeah. who worked hard on a product not really receiving you know the kind of rewards for the work that they put in but in a system like like dark age or like eden where the company is no longer supporting the game um there's never anything that's going to come out for this game you know where where are you laying with the uh, you know people creating models based on that ip and you know even if it's not for a personal profit just to keep the game itself going yeah i think um i 
speaking particularly about the uh, sort of the brood models that have been done recently that that look fantastic. Yeah, there's there's part of me that's like, well, that's 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 taken directly from intellectual property that this person doesn't own and they haven't been authorized to to make models from, which is point. That's one viewpoint. The models look fantastic. Part of the other part of me, the gamer, the the mini enthusiast, looks and goes, "These models look fantastic, and it's really cool that these <laughs> they can be played with." Um, I think it would be like the the first that first viewpoint. I'd I'd be totally fine with it if, um, for example, if we say, "Hey, Matt, um, this per- this company has now taken over the IP. How are you were selling them those files, or mm, um, yep. it's selling like paying Matt for his time to sculpt those because you wouldn't." really need anybody to go and re-sculpt them because they, they look, just look so cool. Um, right. and, and if Matt was to say, yeah, sure, that'd be fine. It seems like there would be no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and Matt said, well, actually, I'm, I'm planning on making a whole range of these and I'm going to do, I'm going to sell it this way. It's like, well, okay, that's a bit different. It's kind of, there's loads of gray areas, really. <laughs> um, it's tough. That is very fair. <laughs> yeah. I think it's. I think perhaps um, the position is only gray because the the company we know that the company isn't going to go after somebody who's made some models now. Um, mm-hmm. If I think if somebody sculpted up uh, Griff Obwald like 15 years ago, Games Workshop <laughs> would have gone after them because it was Griff Obwald from mm-hmm. Blood Bowl, and nobody was. They weren't supporting Blood Bowl at the time, but they needed to keep a, a fierce. Uh, lock on those things right because it was still a current ip you know blood bowl is still tied into warhammer fantasy which was a current game yep. and once you let it you know once you, the way the whole crazy ip laws were once you let one person get away with like oh well you know this person's making you know this not registered copy of this person from our warhammer fantasy thing like what's to prevent someone from you know yeah. creating our chaos it's all a um, there's a slippery slope argument to be made at any at every point I think, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's it's really tough. Um, I I find it really tough to to sort of look at. There's I the, again the the way that Matt is distributing those is all um, hey if you want the files let me know and I'll send you the files. It's not give me a hundred dollars and you'll get all the files. It's not yep. um, he's not trying to make a profit from it. He's doing it for the altruistic reasons and the things look fantastic so (laughs) it was was towards the lighter end of the the gray spectrum for me (laughs) i i yeah i would say as someone that owns a 3d printer and got one specifically to pick up miniatures for minis agnostic games uh your point about you know it's not something you just oh yeah i'm gonna just send this file over to the printer and ta-da it's no there, there is a tremendous amount of cleanup there there really is a art in getting a good print, even with pre-supported STLs. So I agree with your point that technologically, we're probably a long way from, you know, little Billy, the 12 year old, getting his mom to buy him a 3D printer. And then two weeks later, he suddenly has a full Space Marine army. I I just, I I don't think the technology is quite there yet, but five years from now, who knows? Um, I definitely get a little worried when I see people showing up at my game club with fully 3D printed, armies for games that have very strong IP and uh, are currently being sold, like, I don't know, Space Marines. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. That's not great. Um, that, that's definitely on the darker end of the gray spectrum to uh, the point of yeah. being black. Yeah, um, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think um, it's 
there's an element I think where where uh, for those of us who do do see that as a problem to educate people as to why why it's a problem not not just saying hey that's wrong you've done a wrong thing uh, say just you're be, bad and you should feel bad <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, what you've done is is the wrong thing and this is why and this is the impact it could have some people don't value their local gaming store they don't value their local community until it disappears and like oh man we should know well no yep. it's, you don't have to know it's not knowing the knowing part is not it's, sorry it's not important to know how the store is doing but if you're putting in your uh sort of duty as a as a good citizen um of a gaming community that's good <laughs> that's fine that's what you should be doing and and i think uh things like 3d printing space marines is is not being a good citizen i would i would definitely agree with that i think the one great area i tend to lean more towards being okay is if people want to print accessories for their models either for they want to add models with a specific look so if you really want to you know custom shoulder pad for your space marines you don't want to paint on a very complicated logo print those out if you're still buying the kits i don't think anyone's gonna blush at that i also have some optimism that maybe the availability of the ease at which people can make custom bits might push back against some of the worst excesses of uh GW, but also other companies in terms of business model. So selling a kit with one special weapon when you want to have a squad with four of those special weapons for a $50 kit, sure. you're really saying to spend $200 when in reality you should be saying, well, you know, you could buy, you know, extra weapons for 20 bucks. If that can put some you know good positive pro-consumer pressure on the companies, I think that's not the end of the world. My major concern is looking at something like what happened with the music industry. And I, I see this as, in some ways, parallel to okay. what happened in the 90s with things like Napster, where suddenly due to technology, you could distribute a product that normally was gatekept by stores. So nobody wanted to have their, I'll use a New England example, strawberries or Newberry Comics uh, go out of business because people weren't buying records. But at the same time, if a record that was, $10 in 1989 was suddenly $25 in 1995. Well, people start making economic justifications. Um, sure. What worries me is seeing what happened with the music industry, which is now because of digital distribution, it's really, really easy to get music, even legitimately. Things like Apple, iTunes, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, things like Spotify, though, start worrying me, where you have a subscription model to get any and everything under the sun with a tremendous amount of stuff, but the actual people creating things get paid terribly. And I, I would hate to see uh, Spotify for STLs where suddenly, you know, people that currently have $20 Patreons get, you know, 0. 0.0001 cent per download of the rest. Like that would not be, uh, that would not be ideal. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, there's, there is so much sort of crazy potential in, in positive and negative directions. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> now that Owen and Dave have crushed everybody's hope of basically <laughs> getting a 3D printer and the function as a replicator from Star Trek, um, well, you see, know that's 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 one thing where, where like sci-fi has said, "Here's how it's going to work," and and it just have, doesn't work that way. <laughs> we have the communicators in our hand. I mean, I, it, it's, there's one I can, it's, there's one right here in my pocket that I can now communicate with anybody anywhere around the world instantly but i can't get my all gray tea hot 
There, <laughs> there you go. We want that thing, don't we? Um, <laughs> but, but one thing uh, that I I will say before we sort of move on from 3D printing is mm-hmm. that uh, it's one of the things that I find really interesting is it's obviously people buy STL files. Uh, they back terrain Kickstarters. Uh, they back miniature Kickstarters for STL files and that kind of thing. I always wonder what's the percentage of people who then, or of those files, so let's say a thousand files are downloaded, how many of those actually become miniatures? I would bet 10 to 15. 10 to 15. That's somewhere, that's, that's probably my guess as well. And then I, I thought, like, well, that's really interesting compared to like, oh no, I looked around and it's like, here are all the miniatures that I have bought that are still <laughs> in boxes or on sprues. And it's really the, the thing that we're buying as Wargamers is the potential for a miniature right yeah it's i think a lot of it is definitely that fear of missing out like yeah. people hop on the kickstarters because it's like oh man what if this takes off in my le- in my local community i don't want to be the person who missed this crazy good kickstarter exclusive and yeah. everybody else got it yeah so, yeah yeah there's there's definitely that but it's it's i think if, if we continue to think of it rather than think of it as um people are buying miniatures from mm-hmm. these stls they're not they're buying the potential for the miniature and so if we change our thinking a little bit, I'm not sure how it's going to impact things totally, but it might affect the way that as Wargamers we consider our purchases. Because I'm still happy to buy miniatures that I will probably never use. Mm-hmm. Um, because part of the part of the, the joy for me is acquiring things. So <laughs> Retail therapy is real. I, <laughs> I, I, I can definitely attest to that. It is totally that. <laughs> but yeah, that's something for us to think about. Going along with that... Um, you know, it's neat. A lot of newer war, gamer, war games are really focused on the hobby aspect as well as, you know, the game itself. And when you see a lot of these currently supported games out, you'll see like uh, hobby staff putting on live streams for how to paint the models or like come and paint with us or painting tutorials, which kind of lets newer gamers get an idea of how to paint the models and have them look closer to what's coming out, you know, like... Um, Atomic Mass Games, they're, they're doing it with Marvel, where Dal- Dallas or Schick will hop on, painting their models alongside, and anyone can watch it. You know, GW has put out so many, so many hobby <laughs> things. So you, you can, re- like, if you want to paint your model and you want it to look like the Ultramarine in the book, like, you could replicate that to a T. Um, when you're looking at some of these dead games... That's obviously not the case, you know, like sure. fi- fi- finding like just like pictures of the models you're trying to buy in the blisters that you're not sure what they look like could be enough of a struggle with some of these games. But along with that, you know, and how paints have changed and painting methods might have changed. If someone's trying to like kind of recreate a studio scheme from a much older model, is there any kind of tips or tricks that might help them with that? Um, I don't know if there's a like there's something specific about it. I mean, obviously, the best thing is to, to gather as much uh, imagery as you can together of those studio models, uh, which can be the standard model view from the uh, like the promotional pic. Like, here's a picture to stick on your web, so- web store if you're going to be selling this model kind of thing, through to battle report videos um, that might have been played using them. Uh, I know that when I was with um, with Simon and I was able to do a bunch of uh, battle reports with, with some of those uh, fantastic uh, studio minis, and sometimes in the battle reports, you can see you get good glimpses of sides you didn't see before. Um, so you get to learn what that backpack looks like or, or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So looking at, at those sort of things, and if you can find out, usually with the smaller games, uh, it can be easier to find out who painted the studio models, which of the, the commission painters typically 
the really cool commissioned painters from France or uh, the Spanish painters, um, find out who did that so that you can then go and look at what their painting style is like, how their painting style evolved or what they were doing when they were painting those models. Um, I know that trying to copy uh, like Sergio um, Calvo's uh, painting style for a lot of the uh, very cool Dark Age models has really improved my painting. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's that's kind of, I guess, the main thing is look at as many pictures as you can, find out, try and find out who um, who might have done that, might have um, painted the miniatures, and then um, yeah, just explore as much as possible. If you're able to t- then talk with a person um, in some way, yeah, communicate with them, ask those questions. I do think that brings up like a pretty good point, which is uh, if you're looking to kind of paint and get into that mindset of a lot of the 90s and early 2000s gaming is to talk to somebody who was around during those periods. Um, Because, you know, like when you look at it, so many of the products that you have available now are super prepackaged and ready to go. You know, whether it's like blood effects or weathering pigments and things like that. And before gamers were getting very similar results with kind of like household items. And it usually surprises me. I'll talk um, usually my friend Bobby. um, (laughs) I ran out of uh, pumice the other day, which I use for a lot of basing. Couldn't find anywhere. Bobby's like, oh, yeah, man, just go to like Home Depot. You pick up some silicone and you pick up this and you pick up that and you just mix it all together and then just put it on the model. It's fine. It's like, all right, well, um, you know. (laughs) That's that's pretty neat. Like, great. Like, and there was that huge, like, you know, I, I remember reading like terrain articles from back in the day where it's like, yeah, you know, go to Home Depot, get these like 18 random items and like you put it together and here's like a tree and a board and a river that yep. none of this would have ever been sold in a game store, but it was just really creative and the, and the outcome was really cool. And you can still use a lot of those techniques to kind of get those same kind of uh, looks on models now. Yeah. Yeah, very definitely. It's um, for some folks, it'll be sort of working working backwards uh, in their their painting approach. Um, they might have been spending years trying to get like super smooth uh, transitions and uh, results on their minis, but to get the look of their favorite um, dead war game, it might mean okay, we're well, gonna take a few steps back and not worry so much about the smoothest blends to get something that matches what it used to look like. Um, it, it, I guess it all depends on on sort of how far you've got to go either way. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've got, like, as I mentioned with the Dark Age and um, Sergio, it's like the, the work that he did was just fantastic. I, I remember um, putting together a, an article for the skin of um, one of the um, Shadowcast Dragiri. This there there are seventeen layers to this. <laughs> and it, it, like initially the model will look purple and it's like there's there's greens and there's uh blues and browns through this and grays but it all ends up looking uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah on, on that note i mean would you say that in your lifetime just miniature painting in general technique wise has gotten significantly better um i i think yeah uh, i i gotta say that people are always looking to sort of move their painting forward uh even just even at a basic level um even if they're not sure what they want to do or which way they want to go they either want to paint faster or smoother or neater or um, crazier blends or object source lighting or all that kind of thing that people always want to keep advancing what their uh, sort of painting ability is 
Um, and I, I'd say it's definitely, definitely advanced um, a lot. I, I think the last time I won a painting award was like 2006. So um, it, just at this point where my desire to advance slowed down uh, and so many people just went, oh yeah, this is the time where I want to go out and uh, learn how to do all these amazing, amazing things and improve my painting. So yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's been super cool to, to see that. Um, I think a, a lot of the, the games that you guys talk about amusing enough like they they started with fantastic painters um working hmm. on working on the products uh, maybe not started with or at least there was a period that they went through where there were fantastic painters working on the products i mean we're uh, talking about um like confrontation yeah um, mm -hmm. and, and rackham and um how the painters on those uh minis like really set the set the stage or set the, the sort of the trends for the the past almost two decades i guess yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's definitely the case, and it, it's been interesting to me to see things evolve. I mean, beyond just I think miniature gaming in general leveling up its skills, and you know, as evidence of that, I'd say look at who won the Golden Demon in 1995 versus who won the Golden Demon in 2015. It, it's it's night and day. Um, I, I was trying to figure out, looking through some old books, hey, have there been painting fads or trends? You hear online people talk about an American style versus a European style, which I definitely think in the past decade has become true. But I was looking at you know across war games, were there anything I could see in the 90s? And I started noticing something and I saw, oh, okay, this is interesting. Second Ed 40K starts looking a bit like Chronopia, which starts looking a bit like early War Machine, and then realized it was all just Mike McVeigh. Um, right. So, do, do you think that's? Uh, do you think you know individual artists are pushing that, or individual companies? Do you, you think it is broader trends? Any thoughts on that? Um, I think there's uh, there there are definitely there have been trends. Um, I don't know if I'd sort of call them. Uh, I guess if I was to say they were fads or anything, but mm -hmm. trends where it was almost like, okay, what's the next thing I can learn? What's the next thing I can learn? Um, what is what's the step in between that's going to make it easier for me to learn that next thing when you look at things like um and, and i i think a lot of these uh trends uh or the, the techniques that are involved in them have come from people observing fine art historical art uh people creating very um atmospheric dioramas after looking at a lot of uh, rembrandt's work mm. with um his fantastic work with lighting and then how to translate that into a, a spectacular diorama. Looking at folks like uh, Victoria Lamb, for example, uh, from Australia, and, and a lot of the fantastic work that she did early on with um, object source lighting in like uh, the late nineties. That's has sort of that I think there's a lot of that sort of thing that inspired other people to to look at it and to mess around with um, lighting and glows and all sorts of things that can work really well on um, certain miniatures. One of the things that I, I always find when I try something like object source lighting is that I pick a miniature that is probably the, maybe the worst miniatures, they're maybe the worst miniatures to use for object source lighting. Because I always pick something where it's like somebody's holding a glowing orb, but they've got it outstretched away from their body. Yep. So it's not casting the light anywhere and there's no darkness around it to make it look brighter. So a lot of, uh, I don't know where I was going with that. I'll come back on track for a second. <laughs> I just, my mind was wandering, and it's like, that's where I always fail. Um, but then, uh, so 
obviously non-metallic metals and uh, when we're mm-hmm. talking about the work of the Rackham painters, uh, they really kicked all that off, I think. Um, but again, that would have been going back and looking at the artwork of the um, of, of loads of fantastic artists, um, like the 2D artwork. Yep. But uh, then you, you sort of work through to um, folks today who are doing absolutely spectacular hyper-reflective non-metallic metal painting. Um, folks like uh, Kirill Kanaev, uh, who's a Russian painter, does spectacular work. Yeah, all of his stuff, you look at it and you think, okay, well, that's obviously that's polished chrome. It's like, no, that, that's all painted. That's all painted. And you can, you can see the setting reflected. So you don't actually see the setting around the model. You see the reflections of it. And then you hmm. might and it fills in what's around it. Um, oh, that's wild. Yeah. Uh, so there's always going to be somebody who comes along and goes, okay, well, here's how I'm going to take it to the next, take it the next step and the next level and the next and the next and the next. And I think for, for the rest of us, it's really just a matter of, okay, well, where do we want to explore? What do we want to do? What, what's our, I always like to ask, what's the purpose? Like, what's the purpose for doing this Death Guard army where I'm doing all of these conversions? Oh, it's to have fun. And to mess around with a different color scheme that I've never seen on Death Guard before, so that's that's my purpose. I think sometimes people can get upset with their painting when they they're like, "Oh well, I I tried to do this, but it didn't work out." But they might not have really drilled down to what the purpose of doing it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be like, "Oh, the purpose was to get better." Well, what does "get better" mean? Does it mean get faster? Does it mean smoother blends? Does it mean how, which thing were you trying to improve? When really it just came down to, I want to get a better painting score at the tournament, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is so knowing what your purpose is, what your goal is, um, is super important. But yeah, there we go. As I said, I can talk forever about toy soldier. <laughs> so <laughs> get super you definitely. So I, I apologize for that. <laughs> so you definitely hit on like some of the trends over the years. I'm kind of curious if you think there's been any fads. Like if you had to look at painting minis, you know, from the '80s to today, you know, what what are the uh, the jelly sparkly butterfly clips? What are the huge gigantic swimming pool baggy pants? <laughs> like like what what, what are the, what is <laughs> oh, that's that's fantastic. Um, I I don't I don't know that there really have been any. Um, I can think of two. Okay, okay. Um, so I I can think of two things that I've been embarrassed about looking back. Sure, <laughs> just sure. just like those baggy pants. Um, <laughs> you weren't embarrassed by those. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um. One of them is looking back to how everything used to be flocked um, and every okay. single army you had, the entire army was basically on a golf course. Right. Um, okay. I, I don't know quite how that became a thing or why that was a thing or why anyone thought it was like great. But like, that's definitely, I think, one of the most like dated things now. If I look back at like my old Kador army and it's like, sure. man, I just need to rebase everything. And I think the other one, and, and now it's kind of evolved to a point where it can be a little bit more doable or a little bit more of a tool. I remember back when like Tyranids had uh, been a thing in, uh, I think it was third edition 40K, like they came out with all the new models and everything else. And yep. uh, someone out there figured out that if you um, painted some really bright colors on, on a bug and then you dunked the entire thing into Minwax and shook it vigorously <laughs> that, you know, like you'd kind of have, a, you'd have a paint job really fast. Um, and, 
I, I definitely tried exactly that method back <laughs> back yep. in the nineties. And um, outside of getting minwax like all over the basement, and you I was know, gonna say you didn't get your security deposit back, did you? Oh, Dave, <laughs> like back, back in the nineties, like I was fourteen. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so, I wasn't as concerned with that as being grounded for getting like minwax on the ceiling. Sure, just make um, you feel old. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think that was definitely like a fad for a while, where people were just dunking and shaking these models. And outside of the pooling and the fact that, like, it, you'd have these huge gloss coats, which meant you could never strip this model or make it better again without, like, melting the model. It, you know, that that that's obviously evolved into places where, you know, like, it, it's, you know, now people will brush on a little bit of, like, the dip and, you know, do it controlled so there's no, like, pooling, there's no gigantic mess, you're not dropping entire models inside the Minwax can to be lost forever. Right. Um <laughs> But uh, th those are the two things that I can really think of. I'm like, wow, well, this was, this was something that sometimes someone will go back and be like, hmm, I I'm not quite sure what I was thinking. <laughs> right. I think um, I'm going to, uh, I think the reason I don't think of them as, as fads as such um, is really because they were, they're steps along the way, I guess, is what I see them as. Uh, okay. The, the green green basing and the the green fucking and that, that sort of thing. I'm sure that all came from uh, historical wargaming, uh, and it was it kind of was the, the default for a long time, where it was you're painting the miniature, and there's a little thing down the bottom that doesn't. That's the afterthought, uh, and it wasn't until somebody started going, okay, well, hey, this this kind of important, or this could be important, this could help set the scene. I think people were less worried about scene setting before then, but it was just it was the the default before it kind of mm -hmm. moved through. Um, the dip and flick is kind of a step along the way for, for people who might never have gotten an army finished before, or at least an army that they were happy with. And I sort of see that as a step along that that path. That's that sort of approach can work um, pretty well as long as long as you go back and touch up and highlight and that kind of thing. That can look, uh, they can get some great looking models out of it. But I think like the the army painter. Um, company that, that made a, a company out of that approach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, they've, they've been going for 13 years on that now. Uh, and and as you say, like it's people use will will use br they'll brush on a, a dip uh, brush on a wash now rather mm -hmm. than dip and flick and minwax. Uh, <laughs> and and I think if you look at the army painter, that's definitely where their focus has moved on to as well. They're not focused on that that starting yeah. point. I uh, know. So I think yeah, there's there's Perhaps we're just throwing it's we're just talking semantics here, but I kind of see them as being a, a little bit different to those uh, crazy baggy pants. Yeah, I, I, I would say that I, I I really agree with Dave here. Um, I I think there are definitely things that have become interesting to the community writ large in painting, either because they're a, a new technique that people get turned on to, or they're a new. Uh, technology that comes out and everyone tries them and plays around with it and then a few years later it fades into the background so I remember when non-metallic metal became popular um, thanks to the internet and you know forum boards across the internet in the early 2000s and there are a lot of people that posted up pictures of their first attempt at it and like anyone who's ever tried to do non-metallic metal your first attempt is usually not the best is that you know uh, a fad that we should look at back and go, oh, was I trying? No, I, that that was something that people tried and some people fell in love with it, became very successful with it, and others didn't. Uh, I would say that 
I think there are fads in high level painting, it, talking to people, to having taken classes with people that will say, well, if you, if you really want to get noticed now, it, it's popular to do X, Y, Z. So make sure this is something you consider when you're submitting. But in terms of the average hobbyist, I, I, I would agree that fad is probably the wrong word. Yeah. I think uh, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't, hadn't really thought about that aspect as well when you're talking about the, the high-end painters and them saying, oh, well, if you want to get noticed in this competition or that competition, run a bunch, whole bunch of painting competitions. And I know that sometimes people say, oh, who, who are the judges? And I'm like, it doesn't matter who the judges are. <laughs> It, it, it shouldn't it, matter. It, but, uh, sorry, it, it, it like that as a judge, you say it doesn't matter who the judges are. It It wasn't me. Don't hit me. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like beforehand, like months beforehand. It's like, have, have, you, have you worked out who's on your judging team yet? No, no, no. But trust me, they'll be really good. There'll be people who have judged the painting competition before. Um, yeah, I, I do think that that's something we, we kind of talked about at, at, at Adepticon a few years back was um, when we got stranded at the airport, but um, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was essentially, you know, like that um, crystal brush a few years before, like so much of a focus was on the model itself and it was a like strictly model competition. And um, there had been the switch to basing where like all of a sudden now these like huge diorama bases became the norm and not only were they the the norm now, but um, it was supposed to be the norm with only like handcrafted sculpted things. And I remember one of those the big things that got someone disqualified at the time was they they used a Tropicana lid, <laughs> and oh, that, right. that was that was like that was part of part of the issue. Was even though it was like really well incorporated into the model, um, the fact that they had used that Tropicana lid rather than you know hand crafting their basing and diorama um that that's something that obviously had changed a lot you know because a few yeah. years back it would have been like i mean a few years back it would have been like oh, okay that's pretty cool like someone has these cool gothic arches on their base who cares where they came from and yeah. uh, you know uh, a few you know a few years before that it would have been a man who even gives a shit about the bases like <laughs> you know like yeah. wh why are you looking why are you looking at the base the models up here like <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> look at my eyes yeah um, <laughs> it's and yeah it's, it's, there's that kind of thing it's uh it's it's a progression and sometimes it's a cycle you'll go through the, mm. the point where where it's like no stop worrying about that let's let's take it all the way back let's strip it back to the bare bones to the most important the to the feeling to the uh the passion rather than worrying about super precise technical details kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's always, there's always going to be that thing. There's going to be the ebb and flow. There's going to be things that people want to focus on or everybody is recognizing at the same time that, that it's cool. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's always fun to, to see the way that those things go. Definitely. Yep. Speaking of uh, trends, let's talk about 28. So uh, <laughs> We, we, we saw you in uh, or one of your armies in 28 Magazine. Uh, your uh, silence board is featured in issue three, which, by the way, beautiful, incredible. I can't believe you, you worked in. How many skulls was in that? Uh, it was four boxes of GW skulls. Whew. So, <laughs> however many that is. Uh, it was like the, all the, human, the human skulls from it. But um, I think I have a box here. Let me see if I can find out how many human skulls are in that box. Um, oh, it's a lot. So We'll, 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 we'll go with. Well over a hundred, probably two to three hundred. Um, uh, probably, probably more in the uh, in the five hundred range. <laughs> oh, so, well, we'll go with one genocide worth of skulls. 
Yeah, it was it's a, it's a GW table, so um, <laughs> take, take that from what you will. <laughs> um, it, yeah, I, obviously, 28 is uh, a style that you're comfortable working in. Uh, I, I've seen 28 defined a few different ways. Uh, it just, just for listeners, 28 is a term people use initially for 28 millimeter scale Inquisitor games. So Inquisitor was an old game from GW, sort of more role-playing narrative focus, focusing on aspects of the universe that weren't necessarily represented in the Warhammer 40K range. And people have loved the game. The model's are really hard to come by. They're also gigantic. They're 54 millimeters. 54 so millimeter, yep. Yeah, people have started using 28 millimeters. In general, though, 28 now can refer to a few different things. So people will play Inquisitor, but they'll use Necromunda rules. Sometimes that's called Inquisimunda. Um, but also people have started using 28 as a descriptor of other games. So, for example, Sean Sutter, who is the designer for Relic Blade, also is working on a new world, which he describes as 28 Fantasy, in, in reference to the painting style and kind of uh, ethos people take to painting or modeling or, or playing a game like uh, 28 Inquisitor. Did you have any thoughts on this as like an art movement or what, how, how would you talk about 28? I think, um, I think it really, uh, a lot of it is, it could be really considered an art movement. I haven't done a lot of um, art history or, or that kind of thing. Um, so I don't know whether it, it's following the path of a standard art movement, but uh, yeah, like in, in 28, Inquisitor 28 was kind of that, that first part of it where people were were taking those um lesser covered parts of the 40k universe and and rendering those in 28 millimeter scale when it sort of started to move to um more of a fantasy aspect or even like aos 28 so age of sigma 28 there's uh oh what's the uh what's the other one it's not is it turnip turnip 28 Turnip, yeah, which is uh, Sean Sutter's game. Yep. Oh, okay. Sean's doing that. I didn't realize that was Sean. Okay. I, I think um, he's working with someone who does the art, and the art is I incredible. Right. Um, yeah. I think Sean's working on the rules, but he's also posted up a lot of his own models. He's converted from like Pike and Shot models from Warlord. Okay. And just yep. done a, a bunch of really cool grungy conversions on to, to make his uh, his own armies. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. And uh, I know there's one uh, that's ostensibly being called like Salvatore Twenty Eight. Huh. Um, which is more of a, um, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a, not pike and shot, but it's like earlier than pike and shot, a little bit earlier. So it's like late, it's 1500s Italy kind of okay. uh, a basis, but it's, yeah, it's it, using uh, 40K models and pieces. And there, I, somebody I saw on um, Instagram had done a, this awesome pike block uh, that was being transported in a, like a, Scorpius Dune Rider from the Deppus Mechanicus kind of thing. So it was almost like it was a, you've got this pike block ready in a, like in a Higgins boat and the, the ramp is going to drop and they're all going to charge out. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, my take on it is that the, that 28 sort of moniker has been attached to uh, different things for the, the idea is, is that it's exploring the darker corners. It's exploring the grim dark. So you can say that like 40k, what was the old tagline? Um, in the grim darkness of the far future, there's only war. So the the idea that all of 40k is grim dark, but there are some parts of it that are more grim dark than that. Um, it's exploring things that are outside of the the regular. It's it's 
uh, I think it's just a lot of very creative people who are like, I really like that idea that I read in that one paragraph in the middle of a 15 book series. I'm going to take that idea and turn it into something physical, something that I can play with my friends or something that I can talk with somebody on online about. That's really what the 28 idea is about because a lot of uh, those folks are really inspired by not necessarily uh, pieces of text. It might be it, they're typically inspired by a piece of John Blanche artwork or something in the corner yeah. of a piece of John Blanche artwork. Um, some little detail that's like, wow, I hadn't seen that before. That really speaks to me. I'm going to turn that into a miniature or a t- gaming table, an event where I'm going to invite 20 people from around the world to come to play on this gaming table. It's, it is about that creativity. It's, it's taking the spark from something in the corners, in the edges, on the on the sort of periphery, and turning it into something really cool and fun and artistic. Uh, it's not mm. it's not about chasing down a technique and pursuing it to sort of its final result. It's about messing around with things and creating things and trying something different that Games Workshop will probably never tackle because it's perhaps not commercially appropriate so um that's that's my sort of observations of it um over the last 10 15 years um uh, people are always looking for for something so it's sort of a way to to step away from the mainstream i guess mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so i think before forge world started doing the horace heresy books the people who are doing a lot of the ink 28 stuff now were doing horace heresy stuff and then the Horus Heresy became more mainstream, even though it's still not completely mainstream in air quotes. And that those people have now moved on to Ink 28 or Salvatore 28 or Turnip 28. Just so wild ideas um, that, that resonate with them that still have a connection back to the depth of the universes that um, Games Workshop has created. I don't know. That that sounds kind of hipster to me, Dave. It's totally. It's totally. <laughs> well, man, like I, I liked the heresy before it was cool. <laughs> I got a I got a funny story to tell you at some stage, but it, it's probably not appropriate for today. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so moving along um, and looking at you know what I would say, like one of the craziest amount of dramas I've seen in a lot of gaming is when the hobby aspect of the game itself is brought into the other aspects of the game. Um, Most recently for me, I've seen, you know, when ninth edition came out and their scoring guidelines came out, as far as having a painted army contributed points to your actual tournament games um, and, and winning the games in general, um, people went kind of nuts about it. There was a lot of back and forth on a lot of different forums and social media and it's not that, like the first time this has come up. I know Malifaux for a really long time, uh, which was a tournaments were only played painted, um, had a lot of people it, kind of hate painting their models, <laughs> I would say, sure. um, where like um, they would spray, you know, spray an army all white and then just put three colored dots on the model. Um, or there was <laughs> one guy who was like very... I can never forget the way this looks, but like he basically primed the models gray and then took paint bottles, like P3 uh, bottles, flipped the lids, and then threw the paint at the models. Oh, wow. Um, 
So you had these just huge, you couldn't even tell what the models were anymore. Um, and there was just random groupings of color all over it. And he's like, there, each one has at least three colors. And it's, it's, it's Picasso style. And it's like, that's, that's not what that is. <laughs> right. I, I, I think it would technically be Jackson Pollock. But yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Also that, that is also accurate. <laughs> but, um, but either way, I like, you know, like I, I haven't seen gamers like so divided on a subject. I think uh, almost of anything, you know, besides debating which game might be better or like, sure. you know, um, pre-measuring versus, you know, no measuring involved, like th yeah. those kind of things. But um, like looking at it, how do you feel about <laughs> hobbying being uh, affecting the gameplay or the tournament scene of a game? Um, I, I think uh, and I, I've long had a stance on this and um I remember when I was uh, working for Games Workshop uh, and running grand tournaments, and we had the so-called so soft scores in there, uh, including mm -hmm. like paint judging and um, sportsmanship, and there were a lot of the better, like the the competitive players who would regularly win their games. Uh, when I say regularly win, they like win every tournament, like every game they played at the tournament. Um, always complaining about paint scores or um, sportsmanship scores or that kind of thing. There was one, <laughs> there was one case somebody actually said to me, oh, geez, Dave, why don't you just call it the grand pageant? And I was like, <laughs> I was like that, okay. that's a really cool idea. Okay, everybody, <laughs> welcome to the grand pageant. <laughs> um, the inspiration for armies on parade. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if, for me, um, when it comes to tabletop war games, uh, tabletop uh, war games, and and playing them in public, you're always as a, a, the company whose war game is being represented. I, I feel should always want to see the best version of that sort of being being played, or something that ex is going to excite people or enthuse people. So for me, and this is I'm saying it for me, it's my opinion. <laughs> other other people's opinions may vary, and that's fine. Painted miniatures, painted miniatures is part of the entire experience. Um, it doesn't have to be your favorite part of the experience, but it's part of the experience. That having those there is is going to give somebody walking by and seeing it for the first time a better idea of what everything is, what the whole thing is encompassing. Having bare plastic miniatures or primed black miniatures really you should you. Could just be using chits and then you're talking mm -hmm. about you're not talking about a tabletop miniatures war game you're talking about a um strategic war game um a board game is what you're what you're doing you know you if the miniatures aren't important don't it, it's not the game that you should be playing right. um i mean there, there are better there are better strategic games for you to play than 40k there are better war games to play than dark age if you yeah. if you don't care about the miniatures there are better things to do. That's my take on it. As I said, it's my opinion. Um, I, I know that uh, that you guys have seen some uh, conversations when we were talking about Dark Age, and we said, "Okay, for Immortals, you're going to have your uh, your models painted. All your models yep. painted for Immortals." We, we weren't. We were giving out a painting award, but it didn't impact the final results. And we right. still had people who were like. Oh! 
<laughs> right. And it's like, yeah, I mean, get, look, get, I, get somebody it, else it, to paint your model for you, pay them, borrow them from a friend. I don't care as long as they're painted on the table. That's the only thing I'm after. How you get to that point, I don't care. <laughs> but right. Um, I, I think a lot of the times the, the primary kind of thing that I've heard against the, against painting models um, has typically boiled down to that it's a form of gatekeeping um, and it prevents newer players from kind of playing the game. But I think that when you're talking about a lot of these bigger tournaments, like you mentioned Immortals, you know, yep. um, looking at conventions like Adepticon, which is actually a fully painted convention, you know, yep. um, or even just other large events, um, it's not unreasonable to ask people to have a painted army, especially when you're talking about skirmish games, but like yep. um, just to get something basically painted. And, and a lot of that does come down to it's a way to attract new players to the game, which legitimately everybody should be interested in because, yep. you know, the more people playing the game, the more different experiences you're going to be, the easier you're going to be able to find games, you know, yep. like the more fun you're going to be able to have by painting your own models. But also, you know, like the, the company that's actually doing this is going to be taking pictures of the tournament. They're going to be taking pictures of the model. You have these like beautifully like terrained boards um, in what's their like biggest tournaments, you know, that exist yep. for the company all year. Um, everything should be looking like a little bit better. You know, um, most people aren't, aren't going out to a wedding and, you know, jeans and a t-shirt, yep. you know, just being like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're going to make me wear like a fucking suit. Like, you know, like, I'm not coming well, to a wedding. Chris, Chris, I, I put on underwear and, and then splashed three other pieces of flair over my body. I'm, I'm fully dressed, okay? Totally. <laughs> totally. I, I, I spray painted a tux on. Is that not enough? There's white on my top, black on my bottom. <laughs> like, <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, I mean, and that, that still, I think that still applies to Dead War games. Um, because even if a game isn't currently supported uh, by a company and there's not a lot of financial reason for it, um, as players, you should really still be involved in getting new people into the game. Um, and like me and Owen playing at a convention just on a side table, getting some Dark Age in, my like painted Isaac versus his painted brood is going to attract way more people coming by just to check it out and kind of get interest in the game than it would if we were playing with, you know, some bare metal models, you know, and using plastic cups as terrain. Yeah, exactly. And and one of the, the key things that I wanted to say there is when I said it's talking about playing in public, playing where other people are going to be looking at your miniatures, walking past, asking you questions, do whatever you like at, at home, in, in yeah. your basement, your friend's basement, your gaming room, whatever you like. But understand that it's a part of the presentation of, of the game. And, and when you're talking about dead war games, exactly, like if you're trying to get somebody into it, you want to make that best presentation that you can when you're in the game store, when you're in, when you're at a convention, um, you, you want to do that. It's going to give you, uh, it, it's going to make it easier for you to bring more people in. It's going to, um, easier to enthuse people about it. And it's, uh, um, when you, when you are playing on a regular basis, painting miniatures for it, should be like okay well the, the next thing i want to do i want to switch up my list a little bit and i want to take out those two brood hounds and add in some lashes and so i'll, I'll get those guys painted up next um, gives you a little bit of motivation <laughs> there, there's, yeah, there's motivation for it there's um i think there's there are times as well when we think um we think that we should have everything that we want now mm -hmm. um or when we want it and i think that's something that that the that the wonders of the internet has brought us 
because we can find out anything now and we can tell somebody exactly what we think now from that wonderful uh, communicator that we have in our pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are still times when it's like, okay, no, we, we should take our time with this. We don't have to go to, we, oh, I've just started playing in 40K. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm going to Adepticon tomorrow. No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to sign up for the, the team tournament a day before to, like day before the event. Just also day one day one, not knowing any of the rules, probably not the first thing you want to be involved in. Like, sure. yeah, I've I, I played one game of 40k. I'm down for a two-day, like eight-round tournament. It's gonna be great. Like, no, no, you're probably gonna hate yourself and you might rage quit afterwards. <laughs> but, but, but um t- t- tell me you haven't done that before though, right? Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be fair, I, I did play in Immortals that year with all borrowed models. Um, so, um, but when it when it comes down to it, too, and just kind of, I guess, the last kind of piece of this is that right now, I think there's so many products available that weren't available years ago um, that make painting so accessible. Um, you know, between like contrast and prepackaged like effects paints and you know the quick the, the quick shade like we mentioned you know yep. like there's a lot of things that people can get really good effects on their models with a very small amount of time and this even like a smaller amount of practice um yep. you know so like you can get something that you you know it's it's not going to be an angel Geraldes, but it, it it'll be like nice to look at on the table especially with that three foot rule um sure. and also, you know, the internet's a thing and more more than ever, you know, people are kind of monetizing their their hobbies. There are so many quality commission painters that exist. Oh, yeah. Um you know, so if like if you like wargaming but you really just hate everything about the hobby, it, that doesn't mean, you know, oh well, kind of screw off, you can go play StarCraft now, you know, like <laughs> it, you know, you can look into a commission painter, you know, sometimes people want that, you know, I, I want to play this game in person, you know, um, I, I want that social contract. I want to be able to um, talk to the person who's next to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you, you, you want to be able to see their, their body language. You want to be see, see how they move or what are they, what are they doing while they're pondering their next move? Um, all that sort of thing. It, it's all, it's all part of that connection. Right. So, yeah. Or, you know, legitimately, you know, there's there's so many reasons there. There are definitely legitimate reasons why someone might not want a hobby. You know, like you might, you know, you might have a condition where your hand shakes, you know, like you might you might be, you know, working, you know, 80 hours a week or what have you. There's so many things that could exist. But even with that, you know, there are commission painters. There are people who will kind of help you out with things like that. And and for sometimes like you can you utilizing commission painting you can even work out deals where you're helping someone else kind of get into the game Uh, you know the amount of game stores i've seen where you have like a younger guy there you know like somebody like 16 to 20 years old where they don't have money you know to like buy models you know but they're willing to you know to paint your stuff they'll do models like on a one-by-one basis where it's like yeah i'll paint 10 space marines for you if you buy me this box of 10 space marines like I so when yeah. I when I first started I oh, when I not maybe not first started it was a couple of years in I um painted a four hundred model Persian army for the guy who owned my local game store <laughs> and I was like nice yeah that's uh that got me uh, quite a lot of minis out of that but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah exactly it's there's there's a lot of opportunities there and and I think that it's about it's presenting in public is what what we're talking mm-hmm. about here one of the the cool things about Games Workshop as well is the way that they're 
put that in is use this, don't use this, up to the tournament organizer. Mm-hmm. But it'd be cool if you did. <laughs> kind of thing. Or, or if you come or, or if you come to one of our events, we'll be using it. So mm-hmm. it might encourage people to I know that there's other people like follow exactly what the Games Workshop tournament format is going to be exactly so that when they're playing, they're practicing that everything they're doing is a practice game for that that event. So um it, it's really it's it's a game. Yeah. <laughs> they're all games and and they can be a lot more flexible than I think people feel like sometimes they should be. Until they aren't, of course. But I, I would just say that I, I've probably got some slightly different opinions on this than you and Chris do. Sure. Um, I, uh, so j- just, just some priors. I paint all my stuff. I mean, every time I think Dave or Chris has seen me, it's been with painted models. Oh, I sure. like painting. Yeah. Um, and I, I fully agree that, yeah, if you're going to go to a tournament or go out in public, and particularly if you really want to help sell the game, painted models, absolutely the way to go. It, it's part of the overall wargaming hobby. It's what makes it different than video games or a board game. Um, I think other people should paint because I like painting. I think it's a really fun time. I, I accept that some people just aren't going to like it, but I do think that sometimes the way painting is introduced to new ward gamers can turn them off from it just from how we talk about it. So specifically when you know, present, you know, having new models on the table becomes homework. So, okay, I need to be painted by this tournament. It, it, that can be one of those, it becomes a checkbox. I think sometimes there are different approaches to this that can help. I actually kind of like the ninth ed approach of you can still play if you're not fully painted, but here's how many points it'll cost you. So someone doesn't feel like, oh, well, I just, I can't go to that tournament. Oh, well, um, they're not, they can make the decision for themselves on, is it worth the time to really power through to get to the the next, next painted point or, or not? Um, I know a lot of new painters will struggle with, you know, I'm new to this. I don't really know what, doing it takes me a long time i'm nervous that my stuff doesn't look as good as what i see on youtube i to games workshops credit i do like that their painting tutorials tended not to be the ultra high-end studio art box stuff a lot of duncan road stuff is what it would look like the first time someone tried this which i i really did did appreciate um i and more generally outside of just the 40k stuff i do think sometimes the way people that agree with the, the two of you and, and largely me that yeah painting's good talk about it on the internet can be not the best so I, i've seen sure. a lot of uh talk about you know hey any painted model is better than any unpainted model and I, I think the intent of that is to say don't worry if your model's not the best just getting stuff painted is is a reward unto itself and i, I would agree with that sentiment yeah. i think sometimes what people hear when they say that is my painted models are better than your unpainted models, and I can be a jerk to you because you're painted models. And I, I, I would disagree with that. Sure. Right. Yeah. I don't think it, I don't think anybody should be a jerk to anybody. Um, I don't think by just saying that that people are going to stop being jerks. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> how sweet would that be? Uh, but like, man, like nerds heard it here. Like Dave Taylor says, "Don't be a jerk." Don't be <laughs> like, a jerk. Don't that's be that's a gonna, jerk. that's going to revolutionize gaming. I guarantee you, the next con. Totally peaceful. I'm, I'm I'm going to warn you, Dave. The 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 thumbnail for this episode is going to be Dave says. Dave says, "Don't be a jerk." <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I I see what you're saying. There's messaging, really, isn't it? It's it's working out it, again. It's talking about um, purpose. What's the purpose of this? 
Mm. Um, and if we can talk about, have a conversation about purpose, then uh, that helps. So often though, with, with the speed of the internet, we don't stop for those conversations um, mm -hmm. as much as it'd be, it'd be nice to, because we're always looking for, okay, what's the next thing I can look at? What's the next thing I can sort of be excited by? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's fair. And yeah, the, the messaging is important there. Uh, I, I think with, um, and it, take, taking a painting example of that, when uh, the, the contrast paints were released, uh, the bulk of the initial messaging came from commentators in the community before Games Workshop got to it. It's kind of mm -hmm. like, oh, we've heard about this, or we've checked out this, or we've tried this this thing, and it's here's what it's going to do. And that the idea that it's going to cut your painting time in half was the, the thing. You put down one coat and you're good. That was the message that people heard. And then Games Workshop afterwards was like, well, no, you use it in conjunction with this and this and that. And it's like, well, that's not what you said. Well, actually, Games Workshop didn't say that. The community said that. Let's let's make sure we're getting our message from the right place or we or we know where the message is coming from and then how it can be impacted by a bias. So, but yeah, no, you're, um, you're right. I think uh, I, when Chris used the word gatekeeping before, it's like, I don't gatekeep. And it's like, well, maybe I do sometimes. Is there a purpose behind my gatekeeping? <laughs> And, and I, I, I would say that, I don't know. I, I look at it as, sure, I think people can say, well, I want to play this game. I don't want to paint. Therefore, you're not letting me in as gatekeeping. But to your point of purpose, what, what's the purpose of a war game? If you're just looking for a like, fun way to test strategic wit, video games are probably the better way to, to go. You know, some aspect of what makes a war game a war game is having little, little toy soldiers. And I think there's a... a common community expectation that those are painted. Different yeah. communities, of course, will have different expectations. A War Machine right. player would maybe has different opinions on this than a 40K player does. Um, but I, I, I think just writ large, oh no, you're, you're stopping more people from getting into the hobby by doing the thing that people in the hobby want to do. That, that, that doesn't really ring true to me. Yeah. And, and I do think like in the end, all three of us are also on the same thing. Where I've, like, I've never seen anyone come into a game store for a casual game with an unpainted army and someone turn around and be like, no, you're unpainted. Like, I'm not going to play you. You know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's shutting down. Like someone just got a new shiny toy. They want to play with it right away. They didn't have a chance to paint it. That's, that's definitely not what we're having a conversation about. Yeah. It's more of just this, like at, at these higher echelons at these, you know, tournaments, uh, running demos, you know, um, attracting new players to the game. Like it is painting an essential thing. Um, is it something that should be getting done? Yeah. All right. So, uh, Dave, we're going to close out with questions we ask every desk, guest. And uh, I'm going to apologize to Lance from the previous episode because we didn't ask him these. <gasps> but uh, I know, I know. We'll have to have him back on to, to ask him this. Exactly. But just we, just, just like a five-minute segment and say, Lance, answer these questions. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> Lance, go. Um, all right, Dave, wh what are your favorite Dead War games? Um, favorite Dead War games? Um, I think it would have to be Dead. Uh, dead. The Dark Age. Dark Age is uh, definitely my favorite. I think the um, I love it because of the the setting is fun. Um, it's a it's kind of a, a crazy pulp mashup of um, of so many things. It's not particularly highbrow at all, but it's it's just all sorts of cool stuff thrown together with a story that could be possible as far as how how everything's linked together. Um, I do like that. Uh, mm -hmm. The miniatures are fantastic, uh, particularly the 
the, the stuff from the last five years. When I say the last five years, I mean the, the three years. <laughs> from five years ago through the three years that it's uh, survived after that. Uh, and the community is great as well. And the system itself is awesome, but uh, the community's even better. Uh, so many people who are just excited, as excited as I am about the game. That's Yeah, I'd have to go with uh, Dark Age. Right on. Are there any dead war games you think people should know more about? Uh, Dark Age. People should know more about Dark Age. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if people are listening to this podcast <laughs> and dealing with Owen and I on any type of regular basis, Dark Age is definitely going to be something that they know about. <laughs> My work here is done then. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I will admit, I, uh, I don't play a lot of different war games. Um, I have played games like um, Mordheim, Necromunda, Battlefleet, Gothic, uh, all of that thing, that sort of thing. But I played them when they were living games. Uh, mm-hmm. so when they kind of died or they, they were shelved by Games Workshop, I kind of I kind of stopped playing them. Um, mm-hmm. So the concept of um, dead war games and, and particularly what you guys are doing with this podcast is really sort of intriguing to me. Um, I, I think it's very cool that you guys are doing it because there are definitely many more out there that I don't know about. Uh, I've got a uh, friend, you guys know him, uh, Robert Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, if it's um, if if somebody could describe it as a miniatures war game, he has bought it at some <laughs> point during the during its lifetime. And uh, mm-hmm. usually, when it's released, he'll buy everything for it. And he has an entire basement, like a massive basement full of um, full of stuff that a lot of it belonging to dead war games that he will still play or be excited to play or introduce somebody else to. Um, when I first started playing uh, Dark Age, he was like, "Hey, Dave." Um, I play Dark Age, you've got a whole bunch of stuff in my basement, you want to come down and play and check it out? And I was like, that sounds fantastic. So what what you guys are doing is is great, is what I'm saying. Um, well, and, I th- and I think people should, if they're interested in the, the concept that listening to this is, is over the next however long you guys do it for, it's just going to be great. Awesome. Uh, favorite Ninja Turtle? Uh, probably Leonardo. I have no idea why, but um, <laughs> like, I just like blue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait, he's blue? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh man, Dave's gonna get so much hate mail after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. But yeah, that's uh, it'd, it'd be Leonardo. Cool. Um, is there anything uh, or anyone you want to kind of give a shout out to or promote? Uh, I don't know. Um. I think there, there's just a lot of a lot of stuff that's going on. Um, obviously, a lot of stuff going on in the world at the moment. Uh, I've got no idea when this uh, episode is actually going to go out, uh, but I this think yeah. should be coming out uh, mid to end December. Uh, okay. I think we're doing weekly for the first four, Chris. So this would be actually be the first week, first week of December. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. Cool. Man, I'm bad with math. <laughs> Sometime in December, uh, but I, I think um, I'm going to go back to, to some things I said before about the role of the friendly local gaming store in the community. Mm-hmm. Over this past year, it's been super difficult for so many people, um, particularly for, for places where going into a location and engaging with the community is the key reason, well, is, is a key reason that people go there. Doing things that you can do, uh, helping out your friendly local game store, buying some product from them, 
And if you've got, you might have a friendly local game store that's struggling because the owner isn't sure about trying something different, isn't sure about curbside pickup or working out how to do um, mail order or set up a web store. Do what you can to help out and encourage. I think that's the, the key thing for us to to do all, all the time and particularly now. Cool. Would you like to give a shout out to your local game store? Uh, yeah, my friend, the local game store. I've got two, but the main one is uh, games and stuff uh, in mm-hmm. uh, Glen Burnie, Maryland. And the other one would be uh, Titan Games and Hobbies in uh, Timonium, Maryland. Uh, but yeah, both of those are uh, super cool. We'll have to uh, check out the links for those so we can put them up in the show notes and people can go uh, hopefully visit them, uh, support them and what have you. Uh, yep. Also along that end of things, Dave, like your current projects, your the things that people can buy to get more Dave Taylor. Um, right. <laughs> you want you want <laughs> to talk about your books a little bit? Oh, sure. Um, sometimes I forget that I have those and <laughs> it's cooler to talk about how cool uh, the community is. But um, yeah, so uh, currently available is uh, Armies and Legions and Hordes, uh, which is a book that I wrote about, um, essentially about project management for toy soldiers. It runs through and talks about um, how to complete more of your miniature painting projects, um, be it board gaming miniatures, be it big models like the Warlord Titan or a massive commission painting uh, army. So it, it talks about those, all, all sorts of different things there, the the purpose, the goals, the aims, the um, motivation, what keeps you going. Uh, and when you know that you've sort of triumphed and, and completed the project, that book is available, um, should be available in uh, for most of your friendly local game stores to pick up. Uh, if you're in the US, it'll be through um, Alliance, uh, so Alliance Game Distributors or Bridge distribute, uh, Distribution. Um, if your friendly local game store works with either of those, you can pick up a copy. Uh, in the rest of the world, typically it'll be available through Warlord Games. So if your local store buys from Warlord, uh, you can get it there. Or you can buy it online from Ironheart Artisans uh, in the US or in the rest of the world be uh, Warlord Games. And then I think January is when we're hoping to have it um, available for the general public is Terrain Essentials, which is a book that I've worked on with Mel Bowes, the terrain tutor. Um, Mel's a um, a great character from the UK who has been building terrain for close to 40 years. And uh, yeah, we've just finished it up. Uh, The book's just recently arrived at uh, Warlord Games in the UK, and they're going to do all the, the Kickstarter fulfillment for us. But uh, yeah, again, in January, the book, uh, the Terrain Essentials book will be available through those um, those sources, either in uh, physical or digital form. Nice, yeah, awesome. That's exciting. Should be super cool. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm super excited to to get a copy of the book in my hand. I think hopefully Monday morning there'll be a package waiting for from UPS for me. <laughs> nice. Uh, but we'll see. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dave, for for coming out and talking with us. Uh, this this actually went about twice as long as I thought it would, but I think we got some great stuff in here. So uh, we're really, really grateful for your time. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you again for making the time to talk to us. I, I think it was, uh, it's, it's always super cool to talk to you guys. And um, and as I said, the, the concept of the, the dead war games, the dead war gamers society or war games society uh, is a, a cool, super cool thing. I'm really excited to see where you guys go with it. Awesome. Th- thanks so much, Dave, uh, for taking the time to uh, kind of hang out with us. And uh, yeah, so uh, for this week, uh, this is Chris. 
This is Owen. And this is Dave. <laughs> we'll uh, <laughs> see you around next time. Intro music is Axe to Mouth by Pulp 45, which is Owen's old band. Outro music is Control My Fate by Ataraxia, which is Chris's old band. All songs used with permission. If you like what you hear, please like or subscribe. Thanks. So I, I was helping out, you know, a group of gamers who we had gotten into Wrath of Kings, like ran them through the product line, like their arms were filled with boxes, my arms were filled with boxes. Um, but Simon doesn't let like Legion members handle any of the, fi- <laughs> the financial part. Um, and I'm sure what would have been the appropriate thing to do at the time uh, would have been to like walk over uh, to where the checkout station was and be like, all right, guys, you know, uh, we have like this, you know this family and this gaming group they're looking to pick up some models you know if you could bring them up that would be great instead what i did was uh yell uh across the convention floor at dave who i've talked to for about a minute and a half at this point that i need an adult Uh, (laughs) 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 to have dave respond by like looking really confused and putting his hands in the air and other people like look over at me like do you understand who you're asking to be the adult in this situation (laughs) 